Andrew Womack Ministries presents this session from the 2013 Jacksonville Gospel Truth Rally. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Let's turn over to John chapter 13, and I want to share some things with you tonight that I believe are really, really going to help you. And again, just like some of the things I've already said here tonight, the body of Christ as a whole has not been receiving directly from God, but instead they've been going to people that are anointed and have gifts. And again, people are anointed and people do have gifts. I'm not denying any of that, but most people have not been able to receive directly from the Lord. And so we have the clergy and the laity And people think that people, you know, that have their collar turned around backwards or a full-time pastor somehow or another have an inroad to God that they don't. And I'm telling you that that is not what the gospel preaches. That is not true. And I'm going to be sharing some things with you tonight that if you can receive this, it would change your entire relationship with God. Instead of being codependent upon another person, you could tap directly into God and start receiving directly from Him. God loves you. He doesn't just love me. He doesn't just love some people. It isn't some people that just have had God touch them and the rest of you are, you know, just somehow or another dependent upon us to do everything. God wants to move supernaturally in every single one of your lives. He wants to release his power. Every one of you, it says in John chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus was speaking and he said, verily, verily, that means truly, truly, The reason he had to start his statement by saying, this is the truth, this is the truth, is because this was so over the top that most people wouldn't believe this. They wouldn't think that it was true for everybody. But he said, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than this shall he do, because I go unto my Father. If you are a believer, you ought to be doing the works that Jesus did. And somebody says, well, greater works are being on radio and television and putting out books and things like that. I don't believe that that's what he's talking about, but let's just forget that for a moment. What are you going to do with the part of the verse that says, the works that I do shall he do also? Don't even worry about the greater works until you've done the works that he does, which is raising the dead and opening blind eyes and being able to walk on top of things that are killing everybody else. Every one of us, if you are a believer, should be walking in the supernatural power of God. And brothers and sisters, this is not the experience of the average Christian. The average Christian, if you were arrested for being a Christian, you wouldn't be able to tell, there wouldn't be enough evidence to convict you in a court of law. You get as sick as your neighbor that doesn't know the Lord. You're as poor as your neighbor. You're as afraid You know, I usually work into it a little bit better than this, but I might as well just jump in. But there are many of you that when the quote unquote great recession hit and people started talking about finances and everything, many of you were just as bothered as the people that didn't know the Lord. And many of you think, well, of course, it was a terrible time. The Bible says in Philippians 4, 19, that my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. God is not limited to the U.S. economy. 
God moves according to his riches in glory and there is no shortage in heaven. If there was, all he'd have to do is sell one of those bricks on the streets of gold to pay his debt. It would, there's no problem. And yet there are many Christians that entered into fear and into bondage, the same as people that didn't know the Lord. When people talk about the sickness and the flu and this and this epidemic and all of these kind of, and man, here's another hot button with me. People talk about, but oh, I've got to have health care and we've got to have all of this. Man, you ought to leave that for people that don't know Jesus. And God said he heals all of your sickness and all of your disease. You do not have to live a life worrying about all of these things. And yet the average Christian, there's very little difference between the way they think and the way they live and a non-believer. God did not mean it to be that way. Just because you're born again doesn't mean there's going to be instantaneous victory in your life. The Bible says that you get transformed. This is out of Romans chapter 12, verse two. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The word for transformed there is the Greek word metamorpho. It's the word we get metamorphosis from. If you want to change like a worm spins a cocoon and then comes out a butterfly, if you want total transformation, the way it happens is by the renewing of your mind. It's not by prayer. You don't pray and beg God for stuff. You renew your mind. And as a man thinks in his heart, that's the way that he will be. Proverbs 23, 7. Here's another statement that may shock some of you, but your life today is the way you think. It's not the way you want. It's not the way you desire. It's not the way you pray. It's not the way you beg. It's the way you think. If you want to be changed, you got to be changed through your thinking. That's what that book, Effortless Change, is all about. And so anyway, my point in saying all of these things is that the average Christian isn't experiencing what Jesus has purchased for them. They aren't living in this abundance, not because God isn't moved and motivated to give it. It's because we haven't renewed our mind. And I want to share something with you here tonight that if you can receive it, this will transform the way you think. And I'll just start off by warning you, this is not going to be what religion teaches and many of you, it's the traditions and doctrines of men that are making the word of no effect. And so I encourage you, even though I may counter some things that you've heard and just embraced and thought were true, you need to listen and open up your heart. And if you'll receive this, God could change you. And God is motivated for you to live this abundant life, but you've got to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I guarantee you, this will challenge the way that you think here tonight. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples the night before his crucifixion. He had just had the last supper. He had just washed the disciples' feet. And then he began to tell them that I'm leaving. And like I told the Pharisees where I'm going, you can't come now. And then he said this in John chapter 13 and in verse 33. He says, little children, yet a little while am I with you. You shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. 
By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. You know, this is an amazing passage of scripture and I think that most people kind of skip over this and don't understand the importance of it. But he says, a new commandment. Now think about this. What would you think if I came and said, hey, all of the commandments in the Bible, you know what? We're going to start operating by new commandments. I guarantee you, most people would yell heresy. Most people would start saying, you can't do that, man. We got to keep the 10 commandments. We got to do all of this. This is basically what Jesus was doing. Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment. Just keep your finger here. I'm going to come back, but look over here in Hebrews chapter eight and let me show this to you. Hebrews chapter eight, the same thing was done by the writer of Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter eight, I wish I had time to put this whole thing in its context, but the book of Hebrews was written to people who were legalistic who were Jews, who had lived under the law, and it was written to bring them out from under this legalistic mentality into the grace of God. And in the first chapter, it shows Jesus is better than any way God ever communicated. It's a greater revelation than any of the angels or anything else. In chapter two and three, it talks about that Jesus is the high priest of our profession. And it just starts making these tremendous statements. In chapter four, it talks about there's a special rest a relationship with God, which the Sabbath was a picture of. It wasn't the fulfillment, but now we live in a Sabbath. We don't observe just a certain day of the week. We live a Sabbath. Wish I had time to teach on that. That is a radical teaching right there in Hebrews chapter four. And then in chapter five, he starts saying, I have many things to say unto you, but you can't bear them. You're too hard hearted. And then he starts rebuking them in the sixth chapter. In the seventh chapter, he comes back and talks about that Jesus is now a priest, but not a priest of the order of Levi, like the law. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he quotes Old Testament scriptures. And then he makes this radical statement that if the priesthood is changed, then the whole law has to be changed. Because in the Old Testament, you had to be a priest in the tribe of Levi, and you had to be in the family of Aaron. And if anybody else who wasn't a priest approached and tried to do the duties of the Lord, they were struck dead. And so he's saying that there is a whole change in the priesthood. Jesus isn't from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah. And so now the whole thing has to be changed. And man, that's radical, radical teaching. You know, this is radical for us today too, if you are paying attention. And then in the eighth chapter, he begins to start saying that, man, everything has changed. And he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31 about that there was a prophecy, that there would be a brand new covenant, not according to the previous covenant, the Old Testament law, but there was going to be a new covenant made with the house of Israel and with those who were true believers. And here's just a portion of what he's saying here in Hebrews chapter 8. And... Um, it's talking about this new covenant. Again, it quotes Jeremiah. And then it says in verse 13, in that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. This is talking about the old covenant. And it says the moment that he said there is going to be a new covenant, the moment that the new came, 
that made the first one old and the old covenant is ready to vanish and pass away. Boy, those are radical statements. Some of you, if you don't understand what I'm saying, you may think I'm against the Old Testament. That's not what I'm saying. But the Old Testament way that God dealt with people is not the way he deals with people under the new covenant. You know, before I explain that more, let me just give you this example. That in the Old Testament, if a person cursed their father or mother, you had to kill them. If a child talked back, you could take them to the elders of the city one time, and if they did it a second time, you stoned them to death. You know, if that was being enforced today, most of us would be dead. In the old covenant, he told them to go in and kill the men, the women, the babies, the children, the animals, everything. You had to eradicate the whole thing. And some people think, why was it so harsh? Because under the old covenant, people couldn't be born again. They couldn't be changed. And once a person got a demon, once they became demon infested, the only way you could get the world set free of that is to kill that person. Many people don't recognize this, but man, we live under a different covenant. But back in those days, bestiality was a common thing. They were having sex with animals. And because of it, he said, when you go in, kill the men, the women, the children, even the animals, because they were all demon possessed. And as terrible as that sounds, it was like a cancer or something. And it was destroying the human race. And the only way to get rid of it was to just wipe this out so that the host of all of these demons had nowhere to dwell. The Old Testament was harsh. There was punishment. There was judgment. But under the new covenant, everything has changed because we can now be born again. So that if a child does talk back to its parents, you don't kill them. You may feel like it sometimes, but you don't kill your children because they can be changed. They can be born again. We've got a new covenant that is different because now people can be born again. And so everything has changed. And he said here that the moment he said that there is a new covenant that made the first covenant old and we are not supposed to relate to God based on the Old Testament law. Now, there's still tremendous benefit. I study a lot in the Old Testament because it still is the right thing. There's still holy standards. It's just that the punishment was placed upon Jesus and you don't have to bear the punishment and you don't treat people that way anymore, amen? But so there's still great things to learn from it. I'm not saying we throw it away, but we don't live under the curse of the Old Testament law. Jesus bore this curse for us. So the Old Covenant is ready to vanish away. The moment he said that there was a new covenant, then the old covenant became old. Now turn back to John chapter 13 and he says a new covenant, I mean a new commandment I give unto you. If you take the exact same logic that is so clear in Hebrews chapter eight, then that means that when Jesus says that we have a new commandment, that made the old commandments old. And we aren't supposed to relate to God based on the old commandments, but this new commandment that God gave us. That's a radical statement right there. I know some of you are thinking daggers being thrown at me right now. Look over here in Matthew chapter 22 and let me show you what Jesus said when he was questioned by the scribes and the Pharisees. And they asked him, what is the great commandment? This is in Matthew chapter 22 and in verse 36. 
Actually, in verse 35, it says, Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. That is a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And then he said in verse 38, This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Did you know that Jesus, when he was asked what the great commandment was, did you know he never even referred to one of the Ten Commandments? He didn't even quote from the Big Ten. He summarized all of the Old Testament commandments in this. First of all, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second one was love your neighbor as yourself. That's a quotation from Leviticus 19:18. He didn't even quote from Exodus chapter 20 where the Ten Commandments were given. And there's many times in the New Testament, here's, here's one reference. I think there's four or five times that this was used, but in Romans chapter 13, let me read this. It quotes from this Old Testament command of loving your neighbor as yourself. And in Romans chapter 13, verse eight, it says, Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other thing, any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And so this is saying the same thing, that all of these 10 commandments are actually comprehended by just saying, love God. The first five of the 10 commandments are all about having no other God before you, making no graven image, not falling down to anything else and doing all of these things to honor God. The second five commandments in Exodus chapter 20 are all about relations between people. Honor your father and mother. Don't bear false witness. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. And they're about people. So really the whole thing is about loving God and loving people as you love yourself. And there's many scriptures, Galatians 5, 14, uh, James chapter two, verse eight. Others say this exact same thing. But here is a radical statement that did you know that the Old Testament law, as good as it was, it wasn't the law that was wrong. It was us. We were incapable of keeping it. But the New Testament is infinitely greater then the Old Testament. The Old Testament said, Leviticus 19, 18, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. How many times have we heard that? And that's good as far as it goes. But what Jesus was saying was better than this. He says, you shall love other people the way that I have loved you. You know, loving a person as you love yourself is better than what most people operate in, I'll tell you that. But there's something better than that, and that's loving other people the way that Christ loved us. 
I don't know if you got that or not, but the Old Testament standard was actually inferior to the New Testament standard. The New Testament standard is not, it's not the New Testament command for you to love others as you love yourself. It's for you to love others as Christ loved you. And Jesus loved you more than he loved himself. We've got a higher standard than the Old Testament had. And people today are trying to live by the Old Testament law, and yet the Lord gave us a new command based on the exact same logic as Hebrews chapter 8. If we have a new command, then the old commands are fulfilled. They're superseded. They've been swallowed up by this New Testament command. And yet the average Christian is trying to keep all of these rules and regulations and do all of these things, thinking that by doing this, I'm pleasing God and earning something. The Old Testament tried to get people to do what was right by controlling their external actions. It told you to do this and this and this and this, and if you will do these things, God will be pleased with you. The New Testament is a completely different way of God dealing with us. Instead of saying, do this and this and this, and then I will answer your prayer and I'll move in your life, God just came and gave himself for us he loved us and he died for every single person. He healed every single person. He bore the sickness of the whole world. You don't have to ask God to heal you. He's already healed you. By his stripes you were healed, 1 Peter 2, 24. And he placed this healing power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead on the inside of every born again believer. And I'm beginning to say some things right here. I know we're going to think, some of you are going to think I've lost my reason here. You're going to think I'm weird, but I think you're weird. I'm telling you, this is what the word says. You don't have to beg God to heal you. You don't have to ask God to heal you. You don't have to ask God to save you. Some of you are thinking, what are you saying? 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says that he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus has already died for the sins of the whole world. The sins of the world have been paid for. People don't go to hell because of their individual sins. They go to hell for the singular sin of not accepting the payment that has already been made. It just comes down to does a person accept Jesus or not? Let me show you some scripture on this in John chapter 16. This is exactly what this is saying. In John chapter 16, Jesus said this in verse seven. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you. The word expedient means good for you. It's to your advantage. It's expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, talking about the Holy Spirit, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, people have taken that scripture and says, this is the Holy Spirit that's nailing you over everything that you do wrong. Every time you don't study the word, if you get mad, if you lose your temper, if you, you know, Bless somebody who cuts you off in traffic. And if you do this, it's the Holy Spirit that convicts you and reproves you of that. Jesus knew that people were going to misunderstand and misapply the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So he went on to explain exactly what the Holy Spirit would do. And it says in verse um, 10, 
Here's the sin that he reproves you of. He reproves of sin. In verse nine, it says, of sin because they believe not on me. He doesn't reprove of sins, plural. It's not God who's making you feel miserable and condemning you and telling you that you didn't study the word. You did this, you did this. God's angry at you. God reproves us of one sin. And that's the sin of not believing on Jesus. Your sins have been forgiven. You know, I didn't plan on going this direction. I'm going to say some things that probably some of you will just write me off and say, boy, you just totally missed it. I wish I had time to explain these things. But you know what? It's not your... It's not all of these things. The church basically has been making people think that every time we sin, it's a transgression against God. And even if you're born again, you've got to come to God and get that sin under the blood before God will fellowship with you, answer your prayers, or do these kind of things. The truth is that when you got born again, God forgave you of all sin, past, present, and even future sins that you haven't committed. All of your sins were dealt with at one time. And somebody's thinking, how could God forgive a sin before I could commit it? You better pray that he can forgive a sin before you commit it because he only died for your sins one time 2,000 years ago. And if he didn't pay for your sins back then, then you can't be born again. God paid for the sins of the whole world. Sin is not the issue. Well, that'd get me crucified in most churches because in most churches, it's all about sin. People come before the Lord and it's a sin consciousness and they come, oh God, I'm so unworthy and I don't deserve anything. And you come in, uh, you know, backing in and waiting on God to hit you or to reject you. And oh God, please forgive me. The Bible says we ought to come boldly under the throne of grace that we could obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Hebrews 4 16. But most people come in still with a sin consciousness. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 2 says that we should have no more conscience of sin. You should not be sin conscious. And this sounds like blasphemy to the average religious person because all of religion is just focused on sin and saying God won't fellowship with you if you've got sin in your life. God won't use you. God won't use anything but a clean vessel. He won't use a dirty vessel. I'm wanting you to know God hadn't got any other kind of vessel to use. (laughs) Somebody said, well, I'm holy. You may be holier than I am, but who wants to be the best sinner that ever got rejected by God? None of us deserve it. None of you are holy. And some of you who are offended right now and mad at me, you know what? You're committing sin. (laughs) Some of you that are ticked off because I'm saying these things, I'm telling you, God loves me and you're in sin. (laughs) But God's forgiven you of that sin. He's not mad at you. God has already dealt with sin. The, The only thing that either releases the power of God or clogs up the pipe and keeps the power of God from operating in your life is not sin, but rather it's the unbelief that people have. And we have been taught that God won't fellowship with a person with sin in their life. And that's the reason you don't enjoy the fellowship of the Lord very often. God won't use a person with sin in their life. 
You know, I talk about seeing miracles. Haven't we talked tonight about somebody seeing people raised from the dead? I've seen a number of people raised from the dead. And when you say something like that, people look at you and think, I don't believe you're holy enough. God wouldn't use a hick from Texas. And they, they judge you based on exterior things. But you know what? God, and they get, they get to thinking that you aren't holy enough for God to use. Man, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, that God chose weak things of the world, base things of the world, things that are despised, things that are nothing to bring to naught things that are. You don't have to be this great, holy, awesome person. All you've got to do is just receive the grace that comes through Jesus. And the only sin that God is concerned with is the sin of not believing on Jesus. He convicts people about their personal relationship with the Lord. And again, I hadn't got time to put everything in its proper context the way that I'd like to, but I'm not saying that if you go out and, you know, you get mad at somebody that God won't show you that that's wrong, but the way he will do it, it's not a condemning ministry like you're in anger and I'm angry at you and I'm not going to bless you, but rather it's the Lord saying, why aren't you trusting me? Why don't you cast your care about this over on me? It's all about relationship. See, you can talk about a person who's a drunk, an addict, and people, some people will point to that and start telling them that, man, you're sinning, you're doing this, and they'll start talking about all of the problems. The real bottom line is that that person isn't trusting Jesus. The Lord loves you. He wants to take care of all of your problems. He doesn't want you to have to turn to a bottle to get your satisfaction and to deal with problems. He doesn't want you to have to take a pill to be able to deal with things. You know, the real problem with homosexuality and stuff like this is that those people aren't trusting Jesus. God said that he made them Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And they are leaning under their own understanding and they're perverting what God said. There's so many scripture. I mean, it doesn't, you don't even have to go to scripture, just human Knowledge, you know, if everybody was a homosexual, this would be the end of the human race. <laughs> Amen. I mean, it just defies logic. And you know what's really wrong is the fact that these people are standing against what God has done and they aren't trusting in the Lord. And so the God will show you that this is not what I made you for. This is not how I want you to be. But it's not a condemning, rejecting thing. It's all to bring you back into relationship with Jesus. You know, when a person lies, what's really wrong with lying? People can talk about all kinds of things, but the bottom line is you aren't secure in the Lord. You feel like you've got to lie. You've got to misrepresent things and manipulate people and, and change the facts for people to like you or for you to get ahead. You aren't trusting in God. So the Holy Spirit will show you things that you've lied here and he'll convict you of it. But really it's not about, it's not the way that religion has taught us that God is mad because you've lied. But no, God wants you to have a relationship with him. He wants you to trust him. Why do you have to lie about things? Why do you have to misrepresent it? It's because you're insecure. You don't have a firm relationship with God. And so he will deal with you and reprove you of the sin of not believing on Jesus, not trusting in him the way that you should. That's the reason he doesn't want you to get drunk is because he wants to meet your needs. He wants to help you. You know, people could talk about uh, the reasons that you shouldn't go out and have extramarital affairs and do all these kind of things. And often you'll hear the church say that you could get AIDS. 
You can get sexually transmitted diseases. Man, this could happen, that could happen. Well, let me ask you this. What would happen if they come up with a cure for AIDS? You know, they just the last couple of weeks, they're claiming that they have cured some people of AIDS and they are hoping that they could now cure AIDS. What would happen if they cure, came up with a cure for AIDS? Does that mean that it's okay now? Because you don't have these consequences? Well, the way that the church has been presenting it, you would think that because they say that what's wrong with it is you could get these sexually transmitted diseases. You could get AIDS, you could die. What happens if they come up with a cure for that? Is it okay now? No, it's still wrong because the real sin there is not trusting in Jesus. You aren't using this physical relationship the way God made it to be. You've accepted the standard of the world. You're letting your own flesh dominate instead of God's words. You aren't following him. Everything that God convicts you about, it all has to do with personal relationship with him. He's already paid for your sins. And I know that there's somebody listening to me thinking, well, so you're saying you could just go live in sin. I'm saying you could go live in sin and God still loves you. Your actions don't make God love you more or less. There's nothing you can do that will make God love you more. There's nothing you can do that will make God love you less. But there's lots of things you can do that will make you love God less. There's lots of things you can do that will let Satan come into your life and begin to destroy you. And so you're just absolutely stupid if you go live in sin. Amen? But what I'm trying to get across is God loves you, stupid. We're, we're supposed to love others the way that Christ has loved us. And one of the reasons that we don't love others and we get into so much strife and stuff is because we haven't received God's love unconditionally. The church has been teaching us that God's love is conditional on how holy you live and how much you go to church and how much you study the word and how much you pray and all of these things. Am I telling you that you shouldn't go to church and study the word and pray. No, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying you don't do it to make God love you or to make you more accepted to God. God loves you, period. And there's nothing you can do about it. You can't make God mad at you. You can't make God upset. God's not the one that's not answering your prayers. But when you yield yourself to the devil, it says in Romans chapter six, verse 16, know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. When you yield to sin, Jesus has paid for your sin. He is not punishing you and rejecting you, but you just throw the door open to the devil. And you allow the devil to come in and put sickness on you, poverty on you, depression, discouragement, fear, bitterness, unforgiveness. You open up a door to everything. John chapter 10, verse 10 says, the thief cometh not, but for to steal, kill, and to destroy. But I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. When you go into sin, you just let the devil come and steal, kill, and to destroy from you. So you're stupid if you go live in sin. I'm not encouraging sin, but I'm saying that this mindset that God holds that sin against me is wrong. God has placed his, uh, your sin upon his son. He bore your sin. 
First Peter chapter two, verse 24 says, who is own self bear our sin in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Jesus took our sin into his body and he paid for it. Not just your past sins, but even the sins that you haven't committed. The Lord has wiped out sin. God's not mad at you. Not because he just decided to turn a a blind eye to it and said, I'm not gonna hold people's sins against them. No, he paid for your sins. He paid dearly for your sins. He put every rotten thing you have ever done or ever will do upon his son, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus suffered separation from his father. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a quotation from Psalms chapter 22. And the very next verse, after it says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The next verse says, but thou art holy, O God, that inhabits the praises of Israel. The reason God forsook Jesus is because Jesus became unholy, not because of his sin, but he took our sin upon him. And Jesus suffered for our sins. He was punished for us. I am not saying that sin doesn't have consequences. I'm saying that sin is a terrible thing, but God's wrath, his punishment, his rejection was placed upon Jesus and God hasn't got any wrath in him left for those of you who have made Jesus your Lord. All of your sins, past, present, and future have been paid for. And God is not ticked off at you. God is not the one that's holding back his fellowship. But when you sin, you will let Satan come in and it's your own heart that's condemning you. It's the devil that's condemning you. And sad to say, he's doing it with the help of the church in most places. The church is still preaching the Old Testament law that imputed people's sins unto them. In the New Testament, our sins have been imputed unto Jesus. They are not imputed unto you. Look at this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And let me just make that point. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says in verse 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new and all things are of God who hath, that word hath there means it's already been done. He hath reconciled us unto God by, unto himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. The word reconcile means to make friendly, to bring back into harmony or into fellowship. God has already reconciled himself unto you. God is not angry at you. So many people are saying, God's angry at you. God's against you. Religion is basically trying to scare people into heaven. The Old Testament used that approach of a harsh God and all of these rules in a sense to just hem you up to to make it so that you couldn't look anywhere but up. That's what the Old Testament law was. And sad to say, most of the body of Christ is still living under this Old Testament mentality. But in the New Testament, it's different. Jesus came and paid for everything. And now it's the love of God that is drawing. The Old Testament drove people towards God out of fear. The New Testament draws people to God by finding out how much God loved them. And that is a major, major difference right there. 
And it says, He hath already reconciled us, made us friendly. God is not upset with you. He's not holding things against you. He goes on to say in verse 19, that got to it, that means to know that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. This is how God brought us back into relationship with him. He doesn't impute our sins unto us. Man, that is awesome. And brothers and sisters, I'm not against the church. I am for the church. I'm a part of the church. The church is God's system here on this earth. I am not anti-church, but I'm saying that very few churches are preaching the new covenant. Most are preaching the old covenant and holding people's sins and making you feel condemned and, it, and your own heart condemns you and you don't doubt that God has the power to move. You just doubt that he will do it because you know that you're a sinner and you know that you aren't the person that you're supposed to be and they keep you in bondage because you're sin conscious. Again, I quote Hebrews chapter 10. The last part of that verse says that there should be no more conscience of sin. Jesus has taken care of your sin. How did he do it? God the Father didn't impute your sin unto you. You know, the word impute is not a word that we use often. We still use the concept all of the time, but we just don't use that word. But you know, right here, I've got a credit card. I'm not giving it to any of you. But this is what you do when you use a credit card. Did you know when you give your credit card to somebody for a purchase, you didn't pay for that? Some of you think, oh yeah, I did. No, you didn't. This little metal strip on there has information about you on there. And what they do, they take this thing, they swipe it and they get that information and then they send a bill to your credit card company and the credit card company bills you for this purchase. If you think that you've already paid for it because you gave them your credit card, just don't pay your credit card bill when it comes and see if they'll tell you, oh yeah, you already paid for that. No, you didn't pay for it. All you did was have it imputed unto you. That's, what, that's exactly what happened. It, the word impute means to hold against you or to record against you. And so when you give a credit card, you haven't paid for it. You've just had it imputed unto you. But what would happen if you were about to purchase something, you were about to put your credit card down and instead I come up and I said, no, put it on my card. You know what I just did? I had your bill imputed unto me and it now becomes my debt. That's what Jesus did. God didn't just say, well, we're having everything free. Now you can get whatever you want. No, there was a price that had to be paid for your sin. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. And every one of us deserve the rejection and the punishment that was meted out and modeled in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, the difference is that Jesus came and said, no, let me pay your debt. And he had all of your sin. Past, present, and even future sin has been imputed unto Jesus. And you know, if I came up and if I gave my credit card to pay your debt and you say, well, this doesn't seem fair. I'm the one that's getting the, the material. 
I'm the one that's getting this merchandise. It doesn't seem like Andrew ought to pay the whole thing. I, you know, even though he's paid for it and even though he gave his credit card and it's now imputed unto him, I think I ought to pay something. Let me pay 50%. Let me pay 20%. If you did that, you'd just be stupid because I've already paid for the whole thing. Why in the world would you want to pay for some of it? And you know, it's the same thing. There's people that say, oh yes, I know that Jesus paid for my sins, but I also have to suffer. God won't love me. I can't enjoy his fellowship if I've got sin in my life. I can't be used of God if I have any sin in my life. If you believe that, you are still believing that sin is imputed unto you. But this verse says that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. God isn't holding sin against you. Sin's paid for. He's already paid for it. There's no reason for you to pay for it. And yet most of us still go around with a sin consciousness being kept at arm's length from intimacy with God and His power and His anointing and His victory because we don't feel worthy. And I'm telling you that that is wrong. The reason that we haven't loved others as Christ loved us is because we haven't understood how Christ loved us. We think it's a conditional love. We think God loves us when we are worth loving. When we've gone to church and when we've been reading the Bible and praying and when we've been doing good, then we believe God's going to use us. God will answer our prayers. But do something wrong and I guarantee you, you'll come under guilt and condemnation and you'll say, oh God, I know that you still have the power, but you just doubt that he will use his power on your behalf because you still believe sin is being imputed unto you and that God is dealing with you according to your goodness and your holiness, but it's not true. God moves in your life through what Jesus did. That's the reason that we pray and say, Father, in the name of Jesus, What you're doing is saying, I don't claim my own righteousness. It's not because I'm holy. It's not because I've been good. I believe that you're going to answer my prayer because of Jesus. That's what you're doing when you say in the name of Jesus. But if you pray and say, Father, I've been fasting. I'm praying. I'm going to church. I'm paying my tithes. I'm doing all of these things. Heal me now in the name of Jesus. You just took the name of Jesus in vain. You're violating the name of Jesus because instead of trusting in him, you're trusting in yourself. I've had tens of thousands of people come up in prayer lines and they'll say, why hasn't God healed me? I go to church, I'm paying my tithes, I'm doing everything I know. I've done this, 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 and this. How come God hasn't healed me? You told me. Because you didn't point to what Jesus did for you and your faith in what he did. You are pointing to yourself. I'm doing everything I know how to do. And you think that God moves in your life based on your goodness. That's the very thing that's stopping the flow of God. Not your sin over here, but the fact that your faith is in yourself instead of in a savior. You think that God imputes sin unto you and won't move in your life if you've got any sin. That's in a sense negating what Christ has done for you. Boy, look at this verse over in Galatians chapter five. You need to read this in your own Bible. You wouldn't believe this is in the Bible if you don't see it. Galatians chapter five, verse one, stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You know what that's talking about? 
the Old Testament law. Some of you may disagree with that and you're entitled to your opinion, but I'm not going to agree with you. We'd both be wrong. This is what it's talking about. If you read it in context, you'll find out it's talking about the law. In verse two, behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Man, that's a strong, strong statement. Fallen from grace here doesn't talk about that you've lost your salvation the way that you often hear it talked about. It just means that you aren't operating by the grace of God. You aren't walking in the grace of God, but you have gone back under the law. You're being justified by your own performance instead of faith in a Savior. And it says when you do that, Christ profits you nothing. You know, there are people sitting right here tonight that you have been born again. You've made Jesus your Lord. You love him. You are changed on the inside, but because of legalistic thinking, again, as scripture says, Proverbs 23, seven, as he thinks in his heart, so is he. If your thinking is wrong, your believing is wrong. And there are people sitting right here who are born again and have access to everything that God has and is, and yet you don't experience it in your life. You're sick, you're poor, you're afraid, you're stressed, you worry. You have all of these problems. Why is it, if you're born again, why is it that you aren't experiencing the goodness of God? Because you have believed that you are justified, you are trusting in your own goodness, and you have made Christ of no effect. Here's a radical statement, but I believe it. Did you know sin is not what stops the power of God. It is your trusting in yourself. It's when you start thinking that I've got to do good and earn the blessing of God. That's the thing that stops God. Jesus never rebuked a publican, a harlot, any of the terrible sinners that the religious realm rejected. He never rebuked them. The only people that suffered Jesus' rebuke were religious people who were living holy. They paid tithes on even the spices that grew in their garden. They blew a trumpet and prayed five times a day openly in the markets. They wore special clothes. They were super religious people, but they were trusting that their good works made them accepted with God. Those are the people that Jesus rebuked and said, you, you hypocrites, you whited sepulchers, you're full of dead man's bones. It was people that trusted in themselves. The worst sin of all is the sin of self-righteousness, the sin of trusting in yourself. And this is what the church promotes, that you have to be holy and do all of these things that God is going to deal with you based on your performance. I'm telling you, God's love, this new command is we are supposed to love others the way that Christ loved us. And Christ loved us so much that when we went to give our credit card, when things were going to be imputed unto us, he pushed it out of the way and he says, put all of that on my account. Jesus has paid for everything that you have ever done or ever will do. And his arms aren't like this saying, pray harder. 
go a little longer, fast more, read more, go to church more, do more. No, his arms are open and he's trying to release his power, but most of us won't let God flow through us because we feel unworthy and condemned. It's our own hearts that's condemning us. It's not the Holy Spirit that's condemning us. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to show you only one sin, the sin of not trusting on Jesus. And he just says, trust on Jesus. Quit depending upon this. Quit doing this. Turn to Jesus. He loves you. The Holy Spirit's a positive ministry. He'll show you that you're the righteousness of God. He's not going to be telling you all of these terrible things that most of us have heard. God has imputed your sins unto Jesus. And notice it. Let's see, where are we? Look over here in 2 Corinthians. I still got my finger over there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Jesus didn't impute people's sins unto him. This is why he could go into a person who was a harlot and give them total forgiveness and cleanness. And the Pharisees were upset if this man was really of God. He would know what kind of woman this was that was washing his feet. And to prove how much he was of God, he didn't rebuke the woman. He rebuked the Pharisee and told what he was thinking, his self-righteous thoughts. Jesus showed mercy to the harlots, to the publicans, the tax collectors, all of these people. But man, he was hard on the religious people. And it says that he gave us this ministry of reconciliation. We should not be imputing people's sins unto them. We need to be telling people that you're free, that God loves you, that Jesus has paid for all of your sins. Man, that's good news. And in the New Testament, we draw people to God by love instead of drive them to God out of fear. Fear has torment. If you are living, trying to live up to a certain standard and do everything right, you're going to be tormented. And you know, I'm glad that God called me to preach grace. Because some people think, well, the reason you preach this is just so that you can live a sorry life. I bet you're a whoremonger and a liar and a thief and steal money. I've lived a holier life than most of you have ever thought about. I'll be turning 64 this month and I have never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never used a word of profanity in all my 64 years. But you know what? That doesn't make me any better than anybody else. Who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? I've sinned and come short of the glory of God. So I'm not preaching these things to indulge sin. I live a holy life, but I don't live holy in order to please God. I live holy to stop Satan from moving in my life. And I live holy because I found out that that's better than living in sin. I don't give Satan inroad into my life. I found out that it's better to never wake up with a hangover than to go get drunk and waste my money and do something stupid and maybe kill myself or somebody else and then have a hangover the next day and puke my guts out. I don't think that's good. So you know what? I've never taken a drink of liquor. I don't ever do it. I don't ever have to do it. I found out that it's better to walk in love than it is to walk in strife. I live holy, but not in order to please God. I do it as thanksgiving to God. I do it because it's my nature to live holy. 
If you truly understand grace, grace does not set you free to go live in sin. It sets you free from the guilt and condemnation associated with sin. It even says this in Titus chapter 2, verse 12, that the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. If you truly understand grace, anybody who would take what I'm saying here tonight and say, man, this is awesome. I can just go live in sin. All of my sins paid for. You ought to get born again. (laughs) Because when you get born again, you have a different desire on the inside. God changes you. It says over in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, Beloved, or behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Verse 2 says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And verse 3 says, Every man every man or woman, every person that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. If you've truly been born again and have this hope of salvation on the inside of you, your desire is to purify yourself and live a godly, holy life. Any person who would take what I'm saying and say, man, this frees me to go live in sin. You ought to get born again because you don't have this hope in you. You aren't seeking to purify yourself. This doesn't set you free to sin. It sets you free from sin. It sets you free from the guilt and the condemnation. And brothers and sisters, if we could ever understand how unconditional, how holy God's love is, then we could turn around and love others the way that Christ has loved us. But you can't give away something that you haven't received. And the sad fact is not very many Christians have understood the unconditional love, mercy, and grace of God's kind of love. Many people will even accept that when you got born again, you got born again totally by grace. We will sing the song, Just As I Am Without One Plea. And you will get born again by just accepting salvation totally as a gift. But the moment you get saved, then you have to start living holy. And then you've got to start doing these things. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. How did you receive Jesus? You didn't receive Him because you deserved it. Many of you were living in sexual immorality. You were liars. You were thieves. You weren't studying the words, you hadn't gone to church, you weren't praying, you weren't fasting, and yet you prayed and received the greatest miracle that you could ever receive, and that's the forgiveness of your sins. And you received it when you didn't deserve it. And the reason it was so easy to receive is because it was taught to you that you don't have to get rid of everything, you don't have to be holy. Jesus came to save sinners. He commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And so you just receive salvation as a gift. But then you go to church and you're told that if you want God to answer your prayers, you got to start being holy. You got to pay your tithes. You got to go to church. You got to start praying in tongues an hour a day. You got to read the Bible. You got to do this. And you immediately fail. You will never measure up to the standard perfectly. And it's not that you doubt that God could do it. You just doubt his willingness to do it because you know you don't deserve it. 
If you would have had that same attitude, you wouldn't have ever received forgiveness of sins. You didn't deserve to be forgiven of your sins and be born again. But see, we get saved by grace, putting faith in Jesus, but then we think that we maintain our relationship with God by our own holiness. That's wrong. I'm telling you that God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. God loves you because he is love, not because you are lovely. He imputed all of your sins to Jesus and all he's waiting on you to do is to put faith in his name, faith in what he did instead of faith in yourself. And if you would do that, man, the love of God would start flowing in your life. And once this love starts working, it says Galatians 5, 6, that faith works by love. If you could receive the unconditional love of God, your faith would go through the roof. You would start seeing awesome miracles. You know, this is one of the things that happens in our Bible college. All of these testimonies that I've heard of people's lives being changed. They all believe that God could. They just didn't believe that he would because they didn't feel worthy. And when you start understanding this unconditional love of God, it just makes the love of God abound. And faith works by love. And all of a sudden you go to receiving miracles and you start seeing God move in your life. And he wanted to do it all along, but he couldn't do it because your faith was in yourself and not in him. Boy, that is profound. And so when you understand this, what will happen is the love of God will cause you to live holier accidentally than you ever lived on purpose before. You know, back to this point I made earlier, thank God that he called me to preach on grace because some people will say the reason you preach on grace is to indulge your lifestyle. I live holier than most people. And I do it not in order to get God's love, but in thanksgiving for what he's done. I love him. I just enjoy God and I want to keep my mind and my heart sensitive to him. And so I live for him, not in order to please him. I'm pleasing to him because of Jesus. I'm accepted in the beloved, Ephesians chapter one, verse six. I don't live holy to make God love me or to be pleased with me. I live holy because I'm so thankful for what he's done and I don't want to give old Slewfoot an inroad into my life. Amen. I don't want to have him have dominion. This is, you know, some people say, well, what's the difference? Either way, you got to live holy. There's a huge difference. There's a huge difference in doing it in order to get God to do something and doing it because of thankfulness for what God has already done. It basically takes me out of the equation. And when the devil comes to me and say, you haven't studied enough. You didn't pray enough. You haven't done this. You haven't done that. Instead of trying to justify myself and say, now look, I'm doing better than I've ever done. And man, I spent five hours yesterday studying the word. And, to, and you know, the moment you start trying to justify yourself, he's got you. Because I don't care how holy you live, you could have lived holier. I don't care how much you studied the word, you could have studied more. I don't care how much you fasted, you could have fasted more. The devil will, all, the moment you start trying to stand on your own holiness, the devil's got you because you are human and you are not what you should be. You'll never be everything that you should be. But what you do, the scripture says, agree with your adversary quickly while you're in the way. So when the devil comes and says, you sorry thing, what makes you think God would use you? I just say, you know what? You're right. 
Praise God for Jesus. I think I'll pray for him in the name of Jesus. I think I'll get up and operate in the power of Jesus instead of in the power of Andrew Womack. And man, when you get to thinking that way, Satan can't stop you. It takes me out of this thing. Hallelujah. You know, I am going to quit here in just a moment. But let me give you an example that Jamie and I, when we first really got started in ministry, we went to Pritchett, Colorado and pastored a little church there. It was a town of 144 people and we had 100 people coming to church out of 144. We saw a man raised from the dead and it was awesome. And people were coming and it was wonderful, but they were making so much demand on my time that I had been days without studying the Bible or praying because I was just so busy ministering to people. And I knew that I needed to be studying the Word and praying. So anyway, I made a commitment to the Lord that the next day I was going to fast all day long. I was going to read the Bible all day long and I was going to pray all day long. And so that was my commitment. But I had somebody come wake me up early in the morning while I was still asleep. They started knocking on my door and they needed prayer and ministry. So I prayed and, and studied the Word or read the Word, but it was always in ministering to somebody. I was busy from the time I got up until late that night ministering to people. And then at lunch, a guy that I'd been trying to witness to came by and he wanted to take me out to eat. And he was that close to getting saved. And I thought, man, today could be the day that this guy gets born again. And I didn't want to tell him I'm not eating. So I went with him and I didn't eat breakfast. So I was hungry and I ate twice as much as I normally <laughs> ate for lunch. So I didn't read the word. I didn't pray except to pray for people. And I ate and I, I broke every promise that I made God during that day. And then that night I was driving 45 miles to a Bible study and Jamie was at home. I was driving by myself over to this Bible study. And as I was going over there, I had fallen back into this mindset of thinking you've got to be good enough for God to use. And I was trusting in myself instead of God. And as I was driving over there, I was thinking, oh God, I failed you. I promised this. And I had all of these scriptures come to my mind about it's better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not pay it. All liars will have their part in the lake of fire that burns forever and ever. And I was just feeling so condemned and so guilty. And I was crying and saying, oh God, I know I don't deserve it, but please use me tonight and touch these people through me, even though I've failed you and all of this. And I just didn't feel a release on this. And so as I was getting closer, I started praying and I said, Oh God, if you won't do it for me, just do it because you love the people. You used a donkey one time and it wasn't because that donkey was spiritual. Oh God, just do it because you love the people. And I still didn't feel a release. So I kept praying. And finally I said, Oh God, just do it because of who Jesus is. And the moment I said that, the Lord spoke to me and he said, who did you think I was going to do it because of? <laughs> and you know what had happened? I had fallen back into thinking that God was going to use me because of my goodness. And I had to repent and say, Father, I'm sorry. And that, that is sad to say, that's where most people live. You know, I've mentioned that I've seen people raised from the dead. I prayed with a woman tonight who's blind. I hadn't got the final report, but I've seen lots of people that were blind, healed, and deaf ears open and things like that. And when I talk about this, did you know most of you believe in that? This is Thursday night. 
This isn't the nod to God Sunday crowd. You guys are fanatics. Or either you are drug here by a fanatic, one of the two. You aren't the average person. Most of you here believe in the supernatural power of God. And if I was to say, you know, if somebody came up here and if they fell over dead and I said, hey, I've seen people raised from the dead. I'm going to pray for them. How many of you believe God will raise them up? Boy, most of you'd be right in there with me. Amen. You believe that God does those things. You could believe my testimony about that. I've seen it happen. But you know what? If I was to say, all right, if you believe it, you come up here and pray for them. All of a sudden, the majority of you who say that you don't have a doubt one that God can do miracles and that God moves. If I say you come up here and pray for him, all of a sudden your faith turns to fear. Your excitement turns to dread. What happened? Did God quit? Did God change? You know what changes is that when you get injected into this thing, immediately your conscience is condemning you. You have a conscience of sin and you know that you haven't done everything that you should. And immediately, it's not that you doubt God can do it. You doubt his willingness to do it because you think he's imputing sin unto you. You think that if you've got any problem in your life, God won't use you. You aren't putting faith in the name of Jesus. You believe it's your goodness. That's the only difference. It's because you know you better than you know me. If you knew me as well as you know you, you wouldn't have any more faith in my prayers than you got in your prayers. But you think that a minister, man, you've got it all together. And so here I'm going to be, I'm the man of God. I've got the anointing on me. And if I pray, God will flow through me. But you know what? I know me. And it takes, it takes faith in Jesus and not faith in my own goodness. If you could receive this love of God and if you could understand that he loves you independent of your own goodness and that it's the name of Jesus and faith in his name, faith in what he did for you, if you could understand that, you could come up here and raise the dead. You could see blind eyes open. You could see deaf ears open. You could see your needs met. You could get to where it doesn't matter what happens with this economy. God's going to supply your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. God loves you. You're special and you could know that no plague will come nigh your dwelling, that God will move on your behalf. You could know that God loves you without any reservations, but most Christians have not received this unconditional love of God. And that's the reason that we've put so many conditions on our love to other people. You can't give away what you haven't received. You first of all have to understand the great love that God has for you and it is unconditional. He commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And all of your sin has been placed on Jesus. God's not mad at you. God loves you. The only thing that keeps us from experiencing that is our own ignorance of these things. It's the traditions and doctrines of man that make the word of none effect and make his love for you conditional upon your performance. And I've tried to do what I could tonight to let you know that God loves you in spite of all of that. Jesus loves you. He's forgiven you of all of your sins. I don't care how bad they are. I don't care what you've done. Jesus has forgiven you. And if you could really get that message, 
that even though you deserve judgment, he put that judgment on Jesus. Jesus suffered. Think about your worst night that you've ever had. When you've gone out and done something terrible, some of you have committed adultery, some of you may have murdered, who knows what you've done. You may have lied, you may have stolen, you may have been drugged out of your head or whatever and think of your worst time in your life and the shame and the guilt that you felt. All of that was put upon Jesus. Jesus felt all of your shame. If you've been a homosexual, Jesus, he had that sin come upon him and the shame and the guilt and the defilement and confusion came upon Jesus. Jesus suffered everything that you have or ever will suffer. Not because you deserved it, but because you needed it. And he paid for it. Even the people who haven't accepted it, he paid for it. The people who are going to go to hell are going to go to hell with their sins forgiven. They'll go to hell because they didn't accept that payment and they refuse to put their faith in Jesus and therefore they'll have to pay for their own sins. But the truth is their sins were paid for just as much as ours. The sins of the whole world have been paid for. Jesus has already done it. And if you could ever grasp what I'm trying to say, you would be so blessed so touched by the love of God that you would serve God more than you've ever served him out of fear and punishment before. Love is a stronger motivation than fear. It's not as common as fear. Most people don't know how to respond to love, but I guarantee you, once you understand this, love will motivate you to serve God more than fear ever will. And I'm telling you, God loves you. God wants you to receive this love but you've got to renew your mind. Praise God. That's awesome. That is awesome. We hope your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. It's the faithful support of people just like you who make this ministry possible. We invite you to prayerfully consider becoming a partner with Andrew Womack Ministries. You can call our helpline at 719-635-1111. Or you can write us at Post Office Box 3333, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80934. Remember, you can always listen to Andrew's messages at awmi.net. Until next time, we pray that you'll reach out by faith and receive everything that's yours through God's grace.